0: Well, hello, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm so happy to be here studying with you today. This is episode 218, and today we're talking about tuberculosis. So before we dive into that, as always, I have to give some appreciation to those of you who reach out to share with me your results, and your feedback on the podcast, the website, and my online program. So this one comes from Stuck in the Forest. Hello, Stuck in the Forest. I love your Apple podcast name. So this is what this person has to say. Thank you so much for what you're doing with this podcast. I just listened to your recent episode about Q&A for new grads, and it was full of so much useful information. It really gave me a better understanding of how to approach this fast approaching time of graduation. Sometimes it feels like I'm not prepared at all for what's next in this journey, but your words were comforting and really gave me a better idea of how I need to move next. So the episode this listener is referring to is episode 209 if you're interested in getting that Q&A for new grad nurses. and. To stuck in the forest. I'm so glad that it helped you. So thanks so much for taking the time to let me know. So what are we going to be talking about today? The basics of tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is an airborne bacterial infection caused by an organism called Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It's spread through the air from person to person, such as when someone with pulmonary tuberculosis coughs or sneezes. If inhaled, these droplets can easily infect a nearby individual, such as a family member or a healthcare worker. Note that though it is primarily an infection of the lungs, tuberculosis can affect other organs and body systems as well. But when we think of tuberculosis, we tend to think of pulmonary tuberculosis. So let's talk very briefly about the tuberculosis pathophysiology. So mycobacterium tuberculosis is a
1: rod-shaped bacterium, which you'll see referred to as a bacillus. And this bacillus is transmitted
0: again via airborne droplets. Once inhaled, it lodges in the lungs, causing an inflammatory response. So as the inflammation progresses, immune cells seal off the bacilli, and this forms a lesion called a tubercle. The involved lung tissue becomes necrotic, and scar tissue develops around the tubercle, isolating it, where it can remain dormant for life in a healthy individual. This is considered a latent TB infection. Now, in most people with healthy immune systems, the infection remains latent, and they never experience any symptoms of illness. However, in immunocompromised individuals and about 5 to 10% of latent cases, the bacteria can progress and cause active disease. This is referred to as TB disease versus latent TB infection, and if left untreated, can be fatal. So what are the risk factors for tuberculosis? According to the World Health Organization, tuberculosis mostly affects adults, but individuals at any age are at risk. However, those with a weakened immune system are at higher risk. In fact, individuals with HIV are 18 times more likely to develop active disease than the general population. Other conditions that put someone at risk are severe kidney disease, malnutrition, organ transplant, head and neck cancer, and long-term use of corticosteroids. Another key population at higher risk are those living in crowded conditions, especially unsanitary crowded conditions, such as homeless shelters, prisons, and maybe not unsanitary, but definitely can be crowded, college dorms. Now that you know some of the basic pathophysiology and risk factors, let's go through tuberculosis using the straight-A nursing latte method. So we start with the letter L. How does the patient with tuberculosis look? What do you notice about them? Basically, what are their signs and symptoms? While latent TB has no outward signs, the hallmark signs and symptoms of an active TB infection are a persistent and productive cough lasting more than three weeks, unexplained weight loss and lack of appetite, night sweats, fever, and some sources say it usually occurs in the afternoon and it's typically described as a low grade fever, abnormal fatigue, swollen lymph nodes, and then shortness of breath, hemoptysis, and chest pain as the disease progresses. So, again, Those are a persistent and productive cough lasting generally more than three weeks, unexplained weight loss and lack of appetite, night sweats, that one seems to always be on exams, fever, which is typically a low-grade fever, may be occurring in the afternoon, abnormal fatigue, swollen lymph nodes, and then as the disease progresses, shortness of breath, hemoptysis, and chest pain. So the next letter in the Latte Method is A, how do you assess a patient with tuberculosis? So you definitely want to get a full set of vital signs, paying special attention to oxygen saturation and their temperature. You also want to auscultate their lungs. Now, you may hear coarse crackles. You may hear bronchial breath sounds, which indicate consolidation has occurred. So it could be coarse crackles and or bronchial breath sounds. And again, bronchial breath sounds indicate consolidation has occurred. Palpate lymph nodes to assess for swelling for those swollen lymph nodes. You want to weigh the patient and ask about any recent unexplained weight loss. Assess their travel history possible exposures, their living conditions, and for any medical conditions that weaken the immune system. In other words, determine if this individual is at risk. And then tests. What tests will be ordered for a patient with tuberculosis? So the definitive test for tuberculosis is detecting the pathogen via a culture. Cultures can be obtained from the sputum, the pleural fluid, a tissue biopsy, or bronchoalveolar lavage. Now, an acid-fast bacilli smear may be conducted, though false negatives are common, and they're common enough with this test that a negative smear does not indicate no disease is present. Additionally, False positives can occur as well. So, the standard practice in the US, if this test is used, is to run three separate specimens. Another commonly used test is the IGRA, and that stands for Interferon Gamma Release Assay. A more common term you'll see is Quantiferon TB test, and this is a blood test that detects the presence of a specific interferon in both active and latent infection. A nucleic acid amplification test could also be conducted. A positive result in an individual at risk for TB is typically considered sufficient for diagnosis. Of course, this will vary by physician practice. A tuberculin skin test can also detect infection and is used to support a diagnosis of TB. In other words, if the test is positive, This is supportive of a diagnosis of active infection. However, if the test is negative, it does not rule out active infection. Imaging may be utilized as part of the patient's initial evaluation. This could be a chest x ray or a chest CT. And because drug resistant TB is considered a public health crisis, positive samples will be tested for susceptibility to antibiotics. And this can take from one week to one month, depending on which medium is used. So let's back up just a bit and talk about that tuberculin skin test. So if you are in nursing school or working as a nurse or any kind of healthcare worker, you know that all healthcare workers and students of healthcare in the U.S. must get a tuberculin skin test annually. You may also hear this called a Mantau test or PPD. All three terms are used interchangeably for the same thing. This test is conducted by injecting a small amount of tuberculin derivative intradermally on the inner aspect of the forearm. Now, this skin test is evaluated 48 to 72 hours later for the presence of induration, which is a thickening of the skin. If present, the area of induration is measured. So, if it's five or more millimeters in size, this is considered a positive result in someone at high risk for TB, such as those with HIV, someone with an organ transplant, or a compromised immune system, or someone who had recent contact with an infected individual. Now, if the induration is a little bigger, 10 or more millimeters, This is considered positive in anyone from a country where TB is prevalent, anyone who abuses drugs, or anyone with a medical condition that puts them at risk, such as severe renal disease or diabetes. Now, if the induration is bigger, greater than 15 millimeters, this is considered a positive result for anyone, even with no risk factors present. So what treatments are provided for someone with tuberculosis? That is the next T in the latte method, treatments. So the mainstay of treatment is medication, which can involve combination therapy of up to four drugs for an extended period of time, typically six to 12 months. Because of the high risk for drug resistance to develop, adherence to the regimen is crucial. For this reason, most, if not all, individuals undergoing drug therapy for TB will participate in what is called directly observed therapy, which is abbreviated DOT. In directly observed therapy, an individual from the public health department or a healthcare worker directly observes the patient taking the medication either in person or via a telehealth visit. So treatment for drug-susceptible strains, is usually combination therapy that can include up to four medications, which you can hopefully remember with the acronym PIER: P-I-E-R, pyrazinamide, isoniazid, ethambutol, and rifampin. So we're going to talk just about very brief little tidbits about each one. With graduation season already in motion, now is the time to plan for the next steps in your career. When I began my career, I remember feeling all the things. I was overwhelmed, but also so excited to finally be starting my career I'd worked so hard for. I was stressed, but also really fascinated by everything I was learning. And I often felt inadequate, as many new grads do, but was also so proud that I'd landed my dream job in the ICU. And I was also really, really thankful that I was in a residency program that helped me deal with all these complex thoughts and feelings of uncertainty, which is why I recommend checking out the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program is tailored to support newly graduated nurses and ease that first-year anxiety, with benefits like continued education, including state-of-the-art simulation training, student loan assistance and tuition reimbursement, endless career growth opportunities, and more. Plus, HCA Healthcare gives you the opportunity to advance your career in one of the largest healthcare systems in the country. And you'll have support from a community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. Don't wait. Students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. So pyrazinamide goes by PZA, which honestly is a lot easier to say. You should have seen how many times I had to record this part, pyrazinamide. Did I say it right? Hold on. I got to check now. I don't trust myself. Okay. I did. I said it right. Okay. So pyrazinamide goes by PZA. And a key thing to know about this drug is that it can cause liver damage. So teach your patients to avoid alcohol and report any signs of hepatic involvement, such as yellowing of the skin or unexplained malaise. So diving back into the P-I-E-R acronym, the next one is isoniazid. And that goes by I-N-H often. And you want to teach the patient to take their isoniazid on an empty stomach, And that concurrent use of B6 vitamin, pyridoxine, helps reduce neurotoxicity or helps prevent neurotoxicity. They should report any tingling of the extremities or signs of hepatic involvement. The next one is the E, and that is ethambutol, and that goes by EMB. And a thambutol can cause optic neuritis, which is inflammation of the optic nerve and can cause visual loss and loss of color perception. And then rifampin goes by RIF. This medication turns the urine and other secretions orange. You'll need to advise the patient to report signs of hepatotoxicity
1: with this one as well. Now, drug-resistant tuberculosis is obviously going to be more difficult to treat
0: and will include additional medications. A common therapy utilized is BPAL or BPAL therapy, which includes a bunch of
1: drugs I don't think I can pronounce, but let's give it a go. Betaquiline, protominid, and linezolid. So full disclosure,
0: I did have to go online and figure out how to pronounce each one of those. So there you go. I'm not an expert at pronouncing drug names. I didn't want to convey that because it is so not true. So in addition to pharmacologic therapy, other treatment interventions are oxygen as needed, and this will depend on the severity of the disease. And then avoiding the spread of infection is is just one of the other key things this patient will be placed on airborne precautions in a negative pressure room and wearing an N95 mask will be necessary for all the healthcare providers. Now, this can vary by facility. Patients are generally left on airborne precautions until they have three consecutive negative sputum smears taken at least eight hours apart, have been taking their medication for two weeks and are improving clinically. So negative pressure room, Airborne precautions, and you're wearing an N95 mask. Okay, now let's talk about education. This is the E in the latte method. How do you educate the patient and the family? So the key teaching points for tuberculosis are going to be around the medication regimen because it is intense and avoiding the spread of infection. Key thing to know, patients must know that they have to complete the entire course of treatment even if they start to feel better. And the reason for this is because we don't want the development of drug-resistant strains. That directly observed therapy is going to help prevent the development of drug-resistant strains. And it's important the patient realizes this is not punitive. They're not being singled out. It's common standard practice. A very popular NCLEX-style question about rifampin will be centered on teaching your patient to expect orange-colored urine and secretions. Like, if that's not on a nursing school exam for you ever, I want you to reach out and let me know because I can almost 100% say it will be. Patients taking medication should avoid alcohol and acetaminophen because many of these drugs do have that risk for hepatic involvement or liver toxicity. So we just want to be kind to the liver as much as we can. Female patients who are taking oral contraceptives should utilize an additional form of birth control as rifampin can reduce the effectiveness of oral contraceptives. They should also be taught the signs of liver damage since these medications can cause liver toxicity, and these can include fatigue, nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, dark colored urine, abdominal pain, jaundice, and unexplained bruising. To prevent the spread of infection outside the hospital, the patient should avoid crowds or confined spaces, such as public transport. They should also wear a surgical mask when around others and limit or avoid exposure to children or immunocompromised individuals. Though not widely used in the United States, there is a vaccine for tuberculosis, the BCG vaccine. It's typically given to children and infants in countries where TB is prevalent, but it does not always prevent infection. You can also teach your patient with latent TB that it can turn into active infection in about 5 to 10% of cases. They should know the signs and symptoms of active infection so they can report them to their physician immediately. So I hope this overview of tuberculosis helps you prepare for your NCLEX, for your clinicals, and for your nursing school exams. Let's go back and do a little bit of pod quizzing just to drive home this concept so that you feel really strong about tuberculosis. So if you've never done a pod quiz before, I'm going to ask a question, pause for a little bit, give you time to answer, and then tell you the answer. So this is the premise of a lot of the episodes in my study sesh podcast. I'll put a link in the episode notes. If you find this helpful for reviewing information, then you're going to absolutely flip for study sesh. So I'll link to that in the episode notes.
1: Tuberculosis is primarily an infection of what organ? Primarily the lungs, but again, it can affect other organs and body systems as well. How is mycobacterium tuberculosis transmitted? Via airborne droplets. In someone with latent TB, what percentage can progress to active infection? 5 to 10%. Next question, what patient population is 18 times more likely to develop active disease? Those with HIV. The long-term use of this class of medications can put someone at risk for active TB infection. Corticosteroids. What three types of living conditions were listed as putting someone at higher risk for tuberculosis? Homeless shelters, prisons, and even college dorms. When looking at the signs and symptoms of TB, how long does that cough generally last? Longer than three weeks. When you listen to the patient's lungs who has TB infection, what are you likely to hear? Two different things. Coarse crackles or bronchial breath sounds. And what do bronchial breath sounds indicate? that consolidation has occurred. The definitive test for tuberculosis is to detect the pathogen via what? A culture. What is the common name for an IgRA test, the interferon gamma release assay? That is the quantiferon TB test. Is this a blood test or a sputum test? It is a blood test. When getting a tuberculin skin test, the test is evaluated how many hours after the injection. 48 to 72 hours after the injection. And what is the practitioner looking for? Induration, which is a thickening of the skin. Very good. What is the acronym that can help you remember the four general medications for drug-susceptible TB? P-I-E-R. And what does the P stand for? Pyrazenamide. How about the I? Isoniazid. And the E? Ethambutol. And the R? Rifampin. Which of the medications cause the urine and other secretions to turn orange? Rifampin. Very good. What kind of room will your patient with TB infection be in? A negative pressure room. And what type of precautions? Airborne precautions. What is DOT? Directly observed therapy. And what does this help prevent? It helps prevent the development of drug-resistant strains.
0: Okay, very very good. You did an excellent job with that. So that's what a pod quiz is. It's a way to review, test your active recall of the topics. So we have about I want to say about ninety pod quiz episodes inside Study Sesh. So you can learn more about that at straightanursingstudent.com dot forward slash study dash sesh. That's StraightANursingStudent dot com forward slash study dash sesh. So I will see you back here next week. And let's see what we're talking about next week. Oh, we're going to dive into pharmacology next week. So I know you love pharmacology. So I will see you back here then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.
1: I'm not perfect. Peroxidine. Nope. I can't do drug names. This placent, this placent, this placent, placent patient.
0: Because of that hepatic risk for uh, liver damage, because, mm, good Lord, that made no sense. They also should know the signs of liver, liver, liver damage, y'all.
1: What patient population is eight times? Good golly!